it's one thing if you are struggling during a pandemic, if you're homeless, you're losing this year of your life when you're 25 years old. And it's something entirely different when you're in your 60s. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today's episode is the first in a three-part series on affordable housing and homelessness. You just heard a clip from journalist Fernanda Santos. As COVID rages on, vulnerable populations find it more difficult to keep a roof over their heads. Cities across the country are struggling to find solutions. In this series, we'll hear from journalists, policymakers, and community leaders to understand the origins of the problem and what corrective measures are being debated. All episodes of Real Fiction are archived on realfictionradio.com and your podcast platform of choice. I'll be back in a moment with Fernanda Santos. My guest today is Fernanda Santos, a journalist whose recent article, Without a Net, in the New York Times Magazine, addresses the complicated issue of elderly homeless. This is one of the most eye-opening, engaging pieces of journalism I've read during the pandemic. Fernanda Santos is an immigrant, mother, and writer who believes in the transformative power of a well-told story. She is Southwest Borderlands Initiative Professor of Practice at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication, which she joined in 2017 after a long career in newspapers, including 12 years at the New York Times. Joining me from Phoenix to discuss her recent article, again titled Without a Net, which appeared in the Sunday New York Times Magazine, is Fernanda Santos. Fernanda, welcome to Real Fiction. It's so great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Your article, Without a Net, as I mentioned, was recently published in New York Times Magazine. And I'd love to know, when did you first become aware of the high number of elderly homeless in Phoenix? First, I want to start by saying that it's not here in Phoenix only that we see this, right? I have relatives in Boston, and I remember driving around there just as I drive around here and seeing on traffic lights, people asking for money. And it was always um, curious to me why I would see so many older people, you know, people with gray hair, people who looked frail and who I thought would be better treated treated by the system, you know, that people who didn't deserve to be out there on the streets. I always ask myself, how did they end up here? And why is it that we continue to turn our eyes away from them. And so, you know, I, I just kind of left that thought in the back of my head. And uh, when the pandemic started, then I began to wonder again, what's, what is it like to become homeless for the first time when you're an older adult, when you're in your late 50s, early 60s, or even older than that? 
and that's sort of how you know I I really began to to take a real interest in this topic. In your story, you have a man named Miles Oliver who lived in has has lived in Arizona for I think over thirty years, and uh, you know we think of Arizona as this wonderful place where it's always warm and it's sunny and it's 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 a, it's a tracks kind of the snowbirds but if you're living there year round and you're vulnerable and it's 110 degrees this is extremely dangerous can you tell us a little bit about how you met miles and why you wanted to tell his story as part of the broader problem i had started uh spending time at this place called justice center it's a day resource center for homeless seniors so you have to be 55 or older to be able to spend the day there, um, uh, get a meal, take a shower, um, and access some of the services they offer, such as housing placement, um, case management. And as you just said, Arizona is known as this beautiful, you know, sunny all the time kind of place, but the summers here are brutal. This year in specific was the hottest summer on record. We ha- We have had more uh, days where the temperature has reached higher than uh, 100 degrees than any other time in recorded history. Mm. And it is hard to even explain because I know, for example, the, the uh, D.C. area, the Northeast in general, summers are more humid, very humid, actually. But here, the summers are very dry. The heat is very dry. So you feel, while maybe in D.C., you might feel like you're uh, in a sauna, you know, in a steam room, here you feel like you are inside an oven. I mean, there's no other way to describe. Right. So I was at this uh, at this uh, day resource center and uh, spending time under a tent that was being cooled by evaporative coolers. These are fans that where you add water to them and they blow, uh, they cool the water and blow this this cooler breeze onto people. So it, it alleviates the heat somewhat um, because of COVID, everybody had to be outside, which is why they were under under these tents. And on walked, uh, in walked my looking for a bottle of water. He didn't have much of an idea of what that place was about, but he heard it was a place where older people could go and, and you know, get, get a meal and get, get something to drink. And, and he just wanted to get a, a bottle of water. And the case manager approached him and asked him a few questions and came up to me and said, you know, this gentleman just walked in and I know you've been interviewing people here who are homeless for the first time. And, and that's the case with him. Maybe you want to go talk to him. That's all I knew about Miles. But the moment I sat down with him, everything came together in his story. Miles is 55. So he was born at the tail end of the baby boom generation. He uh, was a veteran. He's a, he is a veteran. Um, he served for four years at an army post here called Fort Huachuca, and then four years in the reserve. He stayed in Arizona because he believed in the idea of Arizona as this great place to live. Cost of living is generally cheaper than Chicago and other parts of the country. Uh, the weather is good for most of the year. There are opportunities. And he lived, you know, sort of on the edge throughout his life. He always was employed, always got enough money to pay his bills, but never enough to to build a, a, a nest egg for him. And on top of all of that, Miles became homeless because he was evicted in the middle of a pandemic, even as the state has a moratorium still in effect 
the state's moratorium. And obviously, we have now the federal moratorium until the end of the year, the CDC moratorium. So there was so much about his story that represented the struggles uh, and also the realities of so many people in his age group that he just became this ideal character to to open the piece with. You actually <laughs> address this head on, that there are um, some things we, we miss when we say baby boomer generation. I found Miles' story really compelling because what you do is you've said, well, look, there is a distinction between the two periods of the baby boomer generation. This kind of surprised me. Those born in the second half of the boom generation, which you just mentioned, some have, have fared differently than those in the first half. Can you just touch on that again a little bit about what you learned and and the relevance in terms of kind of the broader issue of senior homelessness? Yeah, you know, Lori, this was my most surprising finding as I reported this story was the fact that uh, the baby boom generation is actually two generate two has two different realities within. Uh, this generation, right? This this group that between 1945 and 1964, they were born, uh, and they are widely known as as uh, a very successful generation. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, a nickname for them is the wealthiest generation, and that is true. But there is a whole other side to this generation that we talk very little about publicly, which is um, very particular to the second half of the baby boomers. Because when they came of age, when they became adults, um, they encountered a labor market that was overcrowded um, by their generational peers. Um, They encountered a housing market that was overpriced because their generational peers had bought a lot of homes. There was a lot of competition for homes. And uh, they were just starting out, so they didn't have as much money to to bid on a house and 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 get that house. So that set them on a path uh, of non home ownership. They also came of age at a time when the country was going through recessions. We had uh, the recession, a recession that started into in the late seventies, and it kind of rolled into a new recession in the early eighties. So it became very very difficult for them to establish themselves, and many of them uh, ended up finding jobs that didn't pay as much, didn't come with pensions, didn't come with uh, 401ks. Um, They maybe had to work two, three jobs to, you know, make ends meet and and live decently. But again, it's about their future, right? They didn't have the opportunities to prepare for their future, the same opportunities to prepare for the future as the people who were born in the same generation, but, but were born before them had. What you've also done in the article is you've taken a look at that that reality that's not been discussed much and kind of analyzed how policymaking at the state level and the national level has maybe failed to address that. You make the point that for decades, Phoenix has known that they needed to do more to uh, create an affordable housing market. And then COVID happened. What is your observation about how state and local officials are have anticipated this problem and how they're planning now for for elders who are find themselves homeless. I want to start by saying that this is primarily a failure from the federal government. 
because these uh, safety net policies are federally uh, established. Things like what we used to call food stamps and uh, subsidized housing, subsidized health care. Those are, by and large, programs set and funded primarily by the federal government and then by the states. The states make their contributions to to all of them. Um, So it's it's a patchwork of funding, but it all kind of trickles down from right there where you are, you know, Washington, D.C., right outside, uh, uh, you are right outside of of the district. So when you have a generation such as the baby boom generation that is born at such where we have so many babies, they accounted at one point, it was something around 72 million babies. They were about 40% of the population of the United States at the time when they were born, between 46 and 64. So when you have that, you know that they are going to age. And the same way that uh, schools had to prepare to receive this large number of children, that uh, cities and neighborhoods had to expand so that there would be more homes for these new families. Uh, we also have, should have anticipated the fact that at one point, these baby boomers would age and they would need uh, health care. They would need other types of, of subsidies that... Um, Maybe they would be able to, uh, any other types of services, I should say, that maybe they would be able to pay for themselves, but but maybe not. And so there have been over the years, over the decades, a number of statistics released that, that kind of showed that we were going straight for, you know, a, a major disaster, which is what where we are right now. These uh, older adults, you know, 55 and older, uh, but if you look at the 65 and older, even today, already. Already, nearly one in 10 households in the entire United States that has someone over the age of 65 doesn't have money to buy uh, enough food for everybody. Then you have 60% of them, of these older adults, have more than one chronic health condition. You know, so, uh, and the numbers go on, the statistics go on. So the point that I'm making is that while I focus the story in Phoenix, really this is not a Phoenix problem or an Arizona problem. This is a a problem throughout the country. It's a lack of concern, I want to say, or at the very least, a lack of planning for what we knew was ahead. That's why I was so uh, pleased that you were able to join the program today, because you're quite right. This is something that cities across the country are dealing with. And I think one of the most difficult things to read in your piece. And again, I'll remind listeners that speaking with Fernanda Santos, um, she authored an article in the New York Times Magazine titled Without a Net. The bureaucracy is overwhelming. And you mentioned that for a first time homeless um, person who is older, they're having to deal with filling out paperwork, perhaps something to do with housing or food, but perhaps for their health. There were instances where you found that one mischecked box could be the difference between getting the help that is needed. Yes. So uh, the perfect example is another one of the characters I have in the story, a man by the name of Mark Fong. Yes. Uh, Mark is 61 years old. He is um, had a long career, longest successful career in the um, hospitality industry in Florida. He fell into depression when he turned 50, a severe, profound depression. And he had uh, his sister had a house here in Arizona. 
and told him, why don't you move to Arizona and try to start your life anew there? Maybe she even, she used the words, uh, he recalls her using the words, a change of altitude for a change in attitude. Mm-hmm. And so Mark came here at the age of 50, uh, 11 years ago. His depression didn't improve. Uh, He struggled mightily, ran through his savings, ran through all his money and started doing whatever kinds of jobs he could do. When he lost his car, he got a job as a supervisor manager at a convenience store that he could walk to. Uh, And then when the pandemic started, he got a job, uh, a temporary job as a personal shopper at Walmart, basically the guy who would go and pick up the stuff that we order online and wait in our cars to get. So Mark was one of those. And because he has heart disease, he thought, you know, this is actually a good job for me because I'm going to be moving around. I'm going to be walking a lot. So I'll be exercising. He was very happy about this job and very encouraged by it. But um, within a few weeks of having the job, he was laid off. And, and so he immediately filed for an unemployment the following day. And he made a, a silly mistake, uh, an answer that required a, a yes, he checked no. And so that alone delayed the process of him receiving his unemployment benefits. And it created, uh, it, it was the, the reason why he ended up on, literally on the street. I think there's this idea that some individuals who find themselves homeless don't want to work. And that is not what your reporting uncovered or revealed, that there was a huge desire to work. But there is some degree of age discrimination in the mix of all of this. I was so surprised to learn that Phoenix has one of the youngest populations in the United States, urban populations. How much does that reality tie into jobs and age discrimination and what kind of employment is available to older adults? That is such a great, a great question. You know, yes, uh, Phoenix is a Maricopa County, which is the county in which Phoenix uh, exists. And Phoenix is the county seat and the capital of the state of Arizona is the fastest growing county in the whole United States. And the growth here is driven by not only by uh, births, but also by people moving into the county. And many of these people, contrary to what many people believe, they're not snowbirds. They are not retirees. They're young people who are coming from places like California, for example, where the cost of living is so high. Um, so here they can uh, live in a, a, a relatively less expensive place. They can have jobs. They can work. Um, and uh, and they are within a driving distance of California, right? Uh, just to give an example, the state has a, a network of uh, state universities and that have uh, banded together to create biomedical campuses which means jobs for for um, for young adults, for graduates, for people who graduate from these universities. There is a, a booming tech industry here. Lots of companies from Silicon Valley have open offices here. Others have just started here because, again, the cost is cheaper in Arizona, the cost of doing business and the cost of living in general. So what that creates is a very challenging environment for older adults because they are now competing for jobs uh, with people who are in their mid-20s. And, you know, we can say, you can say whatever you want, that you don't discriminate, that you give everybody an interview. But I think we are fooling ourselves if we think that chances and the opportunities are equal if you are 25 and if you're 55 years old. As a matter of fact, there was a, a, a former lawyer from Los Angeles who, 
uh, is homeless here in Phoenix. And he told me that uh, something that I, you know, really stayed with me. Uh, I don't recall his specific words, but it was something to the effect of, you know, it's one thing if you are struggling during a pandemic, if you're homeless, you're losing this year of your life when you're 25 years old. And it's something entirely different when you're in your 60s. And for this man, he, he told me, I felt like, I feel like my life is frozen in time, that I am frozen in time. And, and there's nothing, he felt like there was nothing he could do to get out of it. And I think that many older adults, uh, whether or not they're homeless, can relate to that. You know, it, it becomes harder when you're older. And on top of that, Phoenix is also a city that has very expensive rental market. While in a lot of other cities in the country during the pandemic, rents have gone down in Phoenix, they have actually gone up. So it, that makes it incredibly difficult for anyone who relies on affordable housing to live. And most especially if you are living on a fixed income, like a social security income. What I'm also learning from you today is that the individuals that you interviewed don't necessarily come from one walk of life. You interviewed people who had very diverse backgrounds and are finding themselves homeless for the first time. Yeah, because, you know, I wanted to dispel that idea that people become homeless because they are alcoholics or they are drug addicts or because they have mental health health issues. Yes, it is true that a large portion of the chronically homeless population primarily is made up of people with um, with these issues, with substance abuse issue and issues and, and uh, mental health issues. But what is known as crisis homeless, people who become homeless because of a crisis in their lives. Uh, that is not the case. Among them, the majority of them is that um, they are you know, people who, uh, people like you and I, you know, people who are working and and they were living on the edge, paycheck to paycheck, uh, with some savings aside, and then something happens and then something else, the next thing they know, they're out on the streets and completely disoriented. Um, so I, I wanted to telegraph that to people because I think that that's what keeps a lot of us from even wanting to care for what happens to people when they become homeless. We should start thinking that they could be one of us or someone we love or someone we know well. And we should ask, what are we going to do about it? These are the people who worked all their lives, contributed into the system, systems that will pay for my social security, for yours, for everybody, right? And so when they actually need that money to survive, the system is not there for them. The system is not enough. The net has holes so big that they fall right through them. It's wonderful that this kind of in-depth research and journalism found its way into um, a publication that has a wide audience. I, I'd love to know what kind of reaction have you received since this article was published, either locally or from comments that people may have reached out to you from across the country? Did anything surprise you? What surprised me primarily was that a lot of people who work with homeless populations or study them, people like Dennis Cohen, one of the greatest uh, uh, authorities on homelessness in the country. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. They have known about this for quite some time. They have been talking about this for quite, quite some time. The idea of the silver tsunami has appeared in news stories uh, here and there, you know, but never really um, in a way I felt that really brought it all together and made you stop and ask the very question that you're asking right now. Like, what is the reaction? 
what are we going to do about it? How can we change this? So Dennis told me that he's been working with um, people in California to make some changes. What uh, the great hope for many of the people who work with homeless populations, uh, primarily with older homeless adults, is to use some of the CARES Act money to not to uh, rent temporary rooms at a hotel where they can stay until the pandemic ends, but to change the system of care for homeless individuals and create a more um, a safer, more humane and more more dignified system for everybody, but in particular for older people. You know, I've always felt that great writing, great journalism will identify the problem and then highlight some of the opportunities where substantive change can can happen. I think that you've done that in this article. And again, I'll mention that my guest today is Fernanda Santos. She's a journalist. Her recent article, Without a Net, was recently published in the New York Times Magazine. And I think we mentioned in the introduction that you you teach at the Arizona State University Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, just a kind of general journalism question. When you when you write an article like this, or when you teach your students, what are what's a kind of a core value or a, a core lesson that you try to convey in terms of putting a great story together? I think there are two things that are very important, and that's what I tell my students all the time. The first one is listen. Uh, sometimes journalists feel that they uh, they are superior to their sources because they have the power to publish their stories, whether it be in print or, you know, on a website or radio, television. But the reality is that our stories and our jobs wouldn't exist if we didn't have the cooperation of the people who share their stories with us. So we owe them the dignity and the respect to listen to what they have to tell us. Even if we don't agree with it, we have to listen and understand where they're coming from. So listening is very important. And I listen, I spent hours with each of these men and I listened to very difficult stories. We laughed together, you know, we paused and, and kind of pondered the world around us together. Sometimes we cried together too, you know, and, uh, and, and that's okay. And the other big lesson is to always keep your eyes open for the most obvious stories that are around you. Because sometimes the very fact that they are obvious make them ignored by everybody, including journalists. Marginalized communities, such as homeless communities, are a great example. We pass by homeless people every day and we turn our eyes away. We tell our kids not to look at them. We say, don't give them money. Maybe you don't want to give them money, but maybe you can donate some clothes to your local um, homeless shelter. You know, maybe you can talk to your legislator and ask, you know, what's going on about all these homeless people on my streets, not call the police to have them arrested only. So uh, it's really uh, important for anyone, but I tell my students all the time, for them as the next generation of journalists to learn how to listen and to learn how to really see the world around them. Reading your article and your work and your research has been so illuminating. I think you've touched on some things that I haven't read elsewhere. And at a time when we're feeling a little bit of COVID fatigue, this is a kind of story that cuts through the noise. And, and there are many hopeful elements in reading about it too. So thank you for joining Real Fiction today. I'm really grateful for your time. I am grateful to you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Today's episode is the first in a three-part series on affordable housing and homelessness. All episodes of Real Fiction are archived on realfictionradio.com, your podcast platform of choice, and you can also find me on the Real Fiction page on Facebook. Thanks for listening.